Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Food journalist Angela Wei grows up in rural Wales as daughter to the owners of the Lucky Star Chinese Takeaway. Angela grew up behind the counter, helping take orders and serve customers, while also trying to find her place in a small Welsh town. In her new memoir, Takeaway, Stories from a Childhood Behind the Counter, she writes about the surprisingly central role the Takeaway plays in rural Britain. Quote, name me one other room where you can blow out birthday candles, watch a live drunken boxing match between two rowdy customers, and enjoy a steam facial from the multiple Boxing Day hotpots bubbling away on portable gas stoves, with many more examples beyond that. Angela Huey is an award-winning journalist editor from South Wales. Her work has been published in Galdem, HuffPost, Independent, Refinery29, and Vice, among others. She lives in East London, where she was formerly the food and drink writer at Time Out London. She also runs the Chinese Takeaways UK Instagram account, documenting Chinese takeaways up and down the country and sharing the stories of unseen workers in the hospitality industry. Today, Angela and I talk about the lucky star, the central role of the Chinese takeaway, and how the social role of these establishments may be changing in the age of food delivery apps. So, Angela, thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, you know, maybe let's start with the very beginning of the story, which is, you know, what brought your parents to rural Wales in the first place? Yeah. Um, hi, thanks for having me, I think. Um, and yeah, my parents moved to the UK. They're from Hong Kong and China originally. Um, and they met in Hong Kong uh, during the teens, I think. And um, yeah, they moved to the UK just because it's, um, you know, they, they had a better quality of life. And I think back then, during the 80s, it was easier for Hong Kongers, especially people in new territories where my dad is from. It's easier for them to, you know, uh, because of the, because of the, you know, UK rule in Hong Kong. Um, so it was easier for a lot of Hong Kongers to move to the UK. 
And my dad's side of the family already had already established and moved to the UK. So they were just kind of following suit. So um, yeah, my dad's side of the family all own Chinese takeaways as well around Wales. So I think we just kind of followed. So my parents were kind of the last ones to kind of come along. Um, but my all my like aunties and uncles are nearby. So they're near enough, but not in like direct competition. So yeah, they moved in 1985 and they didn't have their own takeaway at first. So they just worked at various restaurants and other people's takeaways. Um, and then they stayed where there was kind of living accommodation as well, where restaurants would kind of provide a place for, you know, all the staff to work and live above the restaurants or like nearby. And they did that for a couple of years until they saved up enough to buy their own takeaway. And then, yeah, they moved in Wales because it was, you know, generally cheaper to buy their own place rather than in England. Um, and that's how they kind of ended up in Wales. I always question myself like how on earth did they manage you know to come from like China and Hong Kong to go to the other side of the world in it's such a sleepy rural place like Wales I mean, I mean you talk about it being being a sleepy rural place and I and as someone who is from Hong Kong we um it seems like a very different kind of um kind of community but yet you know it's if you don't think about it very carefully the idea of having a Chinese takeaway in a rural Welsh town seems um, like not something that you'd expect, let alone expect to have what seems to be quite a quite a central role in the day to day lives of people in this town. Um, I wonder if you might talk about uh, your sense of what kind of place the Lucky Star Takeaway had in the lives of 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 your of of the Welsh customers. Yeah, um, I would say. You know, where I grew up um, in the village that I grew up in, it was a very small population, probably like 4,000 odd back then. And, you know, there wasn't much going on. It's a very deprived area and it was um, a place that, you know, after the whole um, Thatcher era of like the government basically there used to be an ex-coal mining town and you know when the coal mines closed a lot of people were out of jobs and you know the there wasn't that much going on there wasn't that much um, in terms of like, government funding there wasn't you know there wasn't a lot of support and you know it's down to the structures in place so you know there wasn't really that much going for it other than you know you probably get like a supermarket like a little supermarket or a little corner shop so it was very small like compared to hong kong you know you have like millions of people living there skyscrapers and everything you could possibly have in like a big metropolitan city like hong kong but in this like rural little rural village you kind of knew everyone by their name you knew everyone's business you knew the family you knew the hairdressers going on down the road so it was kind of a blessing and a curse I would say like it was really amazing to have this really um you know tight-knit community where everyone is so friendly and I always forget how friendly people are in Wales and every time I go back um you know having just come back from a Christmas break in Wales and then you know you get random people coming up to you in the streets like oh yeah how are you doing and that kind of thing and then you know being in Wales uh being in London now you know you get on the tube and no one wants to speak to you <laughs> and um and I think people generally go to places like Chinese takeaways uh, as a place to just 
you know have a a chat and a catch-up or have their food like it was just more than a place it was more than a place to get your food from you know we knew a lot about our customers lives you know a lot of the customers watched me and my brothers grow up behind the counter you know I started working at the takeaway when I was eight years old and I'd have a little stool to you know step on to help uh, my parents work in front of house and you know tried like struggling carrying two liter bottles of coke to give it to customers and you know chatted to customers and and behind the counter I was doing my homework and you know customers would help me out and some customers you know became family friends and customers would you know help translate for my parents whenever we weren't away or you know they would chip in and help out answering phone calls or going on delivery routes for us as well like it was just all you know hands on deck and everyone was really happy to help out like it wasn't nothing was too big or small so I yeah and I really really love that um that really tight-knit community that Wales provided and I love that <laughs> um I, I do want to get into the into the tightness the, the tight-knitness of that community I do want to know, I mean, for a town of 4,000 people, again, kind of bringing in the Hong Kong comparison, I think 4,000 people live in my apartment complex uh, yeah, here, yeah. here in Hong Kong. But, you know, you know, but I believe you're, you're, you're born in Wales. You are a local. Um, but you also get the kind of um, the where are you from really question, which I know um, is a question that has um, frustrated, uh, frustrated those of those of Asian descent, lack of a better term, not just in the UK, but kind of all over the Western world. Um, you know, and I thought if I'm asking you to get a bit more into that, you know, was it difficult um, growing up in rural Wales, uh, where you are one of only a handful of people that are of Chinese descent, um, while also being Welsh, by also being very steeped in that Welsh community? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, where are you from is such a loaded question, right? It's for, I, I think my mindset has changed a lot as as I was younger. You know, it really frustrated me because I was always kind of singled out, you know, going to a very white school. Um, you know, I could probably count the amount of people of color on one hand. And, you know, it's a very, you know, very white community where, you know, you don't see yourself reflected anywhere. You don't, you look at magazines, no one looks like you, you look at TV, you're not represented or film. And, you know, over time, that's definitely changing now. You finally get it. We're finally seeing the representation in media, in books and magazines and all sorts. But, you know, growing up in the 90s and the noughties, you know, there really wasn't that uh, often. And, uh, it, it, it also felt like attack, you know, when someone's asking, where are you from? It's like you're singling you out specifically for your skin tone. And, you know, uh, it's it's almost like it, I get where they're coming from. Like I, what I'm trying to say, I think it's like as a as a kid. You know, you you just kind of want to fit in, right? You just want to be part of everyone else. You want to be part of like friendship circles, but you can't really because you're always kind of singled out. Like you're not really from here because you don't look like you're from here. And I think it was, you know, it's not for me. I guess it's it's not really racist to ask someone where they're from, you know. But I think it is racist to not accept their answer because it doesn't really you know answer the question where you're really asking you know like are you like why are you visibly non-white so I think that's the thing that really irked me growing up it's 
you know, when people would ask me, like, oh, where are you from? And then I would say, I'm from Wales. And they're like, no, you're not from Wales. Like, you're, you're from Hong Kong. I can clearly see, or like Japan or Thailand, you know, it's like, because I don't look white or because I, you know, I'm not Welsh, I'm Welsh looking enough. And I do think it's ridiculous that in in the UK of all countries, you know, a culture organized around politeness and spoken boundaries, nonverbal cues and taking a hint and stuff. And I think it's like suddenly we're claiming to be total oafs when people can't tell the difference between a mutual dialogue and interrogation. So that's where I, you know, draw the line with like, where are you from? And I guess, um, you know, growing up, yeah, I just always felt like I lived belonged in two worlds so at home in the takeaway uh sense you know it was very Chinese you know working with my parents and my family we spoke Cantonese at home uh on Sundays I went to you know Chinese school and then at home I would watch TVB and Hong Kong cartoons and uh read magazines and newspapers and TV shows so I was always kind of I was always surrounded by Chinese-ness because my parents really instilled it on us because my mum and dad really wanted to make sure that we never lose that side of our culture, our native tongue. Whereas like in school, it was very, very white and, you know, it was always kind of torn. So it was like, who am I in this person? Like I speak English to all my friends and, you know, it was trying to juggle the both worlds and not realising that they could kind of come together. So I think as I've gotten older, where my identity is it's this kind of mishmash of both and um you know my me and my family we you know I've been going to Hong Kong since I was three years old I've got a you know Hong Kong ID I go back every year I still have family there so you know it was like such a juxtaposition between the two you know you go to Hong Kong and these like skyscraper towers and uh, and every time I go back to Hong Kong people would you know could tell that I'm not from Hong Kong because of the way I spoke the way I dress the way my you know um, my mannerisms but whenever I'm in the UK people kind of can see that I'm not from the UK because I'm Chinese I look Chinese I am Chinese so yeah it was always really difficult to kind of juggle the two worlds um growing up and you know it's a sad thing where growing up I I really wished I was white because all I wanted to do was fit in with my peers and you know looking back on that now you kind of realize how ridiculous that is <laughs> um yeah I think so I I do want to make sure we 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 talk about the takeaway um the lucky star takeaway specifically kind of the the experience of well, the experience of growing up in a takeaway and what you might have been exposed to in terms of the the business or the economics of running a of running a small business like that in 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 rural Britain, um, I guess kind of what are the like what is the business of running a Chinese takeaway like the Lucky Star? What what's that like? Yeah, um, it was backbreaking work. You know, my parents opened seven days a week. Um, and, you know, it was more than just the opening hours. You know, we opened from five o'clock to 11 p.m. in the evening. So very unsociable hours, you know, in the evening and um, even on weekends as well. Um, you know, whenever people would like celebrate birthdays, weddings or um, any bank holidays, we would be always open and working. And, um, you know, or as a kid, all I wanted to do was kind of go out and play or, you know, have holidays for normal holidays like my friends all did or have a weekend like 
or my you know everyone else but um yeah I guess when you work in hospitality those kind of um like regular working hours don't really exist I would say um but yeah my parents worked I think like 15 hour days more than that probably uh, because they would get up and there was a lot of prep work and I think prep work takes a lot of time and people don't realize you know from the weekends uh you know we would this is like before google existed or like any online thing like it's a lot easier now i would say to run an online business but then there's like you would have to go to you know the wholesalers on the weekend which i talk about in the book you know going to this place where you can buy like bulk items of like uh, boxes of chips or like bean sprouts or like big sacks of onions and then you know you go home and then you slowly prep so you know you wake up my mum would probably wake up at like 6am every day I think and she would be like chopping onions you know prep chopping quartering mushrooms or like beating eggs or like peeling prawns and chopping chassis or poaching chicken for the stock like this just like never-ending amount of stuff to do to get your mise en place which is like your kitchen setup ready and then yeah you kind of have to like prep for when the kitchen actually opens so the kitchen opened from like five o'clock and then you know phone line would, would start ringing and me and my brothers were mainly on like front of house or on like lid duty so like front of house we would just be you know um taking customers orders uh answering phone calls and then taking delivery orders as well we we did delivery back then as well and yeah just helping uh our parents pack orders in the kitchen as well and then taking them out yeah I, i'm i'm tired from just listing it all out I, I look back on a lot of um you know people like hospitality work uh, there's days when i really miss it you know i miss the rush of it it's incredibly stressful because you're juggling so many things you know you're juggling um, you know, because my dad was mainly on the walks, my mum was mainly on the fryer station, and we really didn't have that much external help other than uh, on the counter staff or delivery drivers. So yeah, it was mainly family in the kitchen, and it was just never ending. Like it was just you know, imagine you had just like countless tickets come in, and uh, there's just like multiple things you need to juggle. And it gets really stressful when all these order buildups or there's like something wrong that kind of upsets the balance. So when, you know, a customer's complaining. So it can get really stressful, especially working in the kitchen. That's such a high pressure job. But I kind of really miss that. And I miss being able to, you know, be so close to my family because I was working with them and living together in the same place for 26 years. And and I really miss that kind of rush of, you know, accomplishing something together you know when we would <clears throat> sorry <clears throat> when we would um accomplish you know a, a really busy shift together you know we managed to like smash out like 100 200 orders in a night or we managed to like you know make a lot of money in one night and it was just really a satisfying goal of us working together and I really miss miss that rush um but obviously it's very stressful and I you know there's good and bad working at the kitchen <laughs> So I, I I I know I know you kind of cover this industry um in your in your day job um and you know the the lucky star takeaway does start to struggle as time goes on due to greater competition and just changing tastes or whatever and um your parents do eventually sell the business uh I do that led me to kind of think of a a different question which was um you know has the has the takeaway business gotten harder as times change, as tech changes? 
or potentially has the kind of this this kind of central role the takeaway um has that changed as more and more of us start ordering start ordering food through food delivery apps where the delivery drivers don't work for any one particular restaurant they're just looking for whatever gigs they can um you may even have delivery places with no front desk at all they're just ghost kitchens just just how has the you know in in with the experience kind of of your own family and also just kind of what you're seeing day to day are you seeing kind of the the business or even just the social kind of role the takeaway changing as society changes yeah i mean i mean the pandemic kind of changed our eating habits for like it's completely more and more reliant on online and takeaways you know during covid when we weren't allowed to go to restaurants and we weren't allowed to be together you know we were heavily reliant on deliveries and we were all scared of going out and so i think there was like definitely more reliant on takeaways and you know it's yeah i think like um you know like i feel like people's eating habits have changed you know it's definitely more takeaway but we've definitely taken that more into consideration in terms of like how we order now but you know chinese takeaways in the uk like it's still very very popular it's you know even when my parents first bought the takeaway 30 years ago chinese food was considered kind of new and exotic and like places like you know delivery uber eats just eat um you know it's still the nation's favorite takeaway people still love it but you know over time there's an introduction of more and more cuisines people are getting more curious with their orders you know people are intrigued they want to order more and now you there's more competition i would say from when my parents uh you know had the takeaway in the 80s because i think back in the 80s there really wasn't that much it was either like pizza or indian takeaways or chinese takeaways that was kind of what was available then and now almost like 30 years well like 30 years later you get everything on fingertips you know you can get like vietnamese food delivered in like five minutes or like sushi delivered in like a couple of minutes and um and i think um to like answer your question i guess like the online restaurant delivery companies now like that's boomed over covid and you know even before then i think um like a lot of these established like they don't take into like all the figures and everything of like the skyrocketing um like online takeaways and deliveries they don't take it as the count of establishments that haven't digitized like um like my parents for example they were very fiercely you know cash only and they didn't take card and they didn't have an online presence and you know there's um like just down the street from where i'm from there's a chinese takeaway that i really love going to and they've been going since the 70s and you know they they're still doing exactly the same thing they're still cash only they don't have online and they're doing really well still and it's still like the same old you know this old woman at the counter old chinese lady at the counter and they they don't you know they don't want to change and i think most older generation chinese generations who work in hospitality like my parents they don't really understand the importance of online ordering systems or websites or social media and um and i think it's like uh, their generation in terms of like quite stubborn they don't want to change or them being like bad <laughs> you know business owners in terms of that i guess it's you know it's it's, it's so many factors on why like takeaways are 
like it's so much harder to run a business now as well like even we've got all the tech to help us you know with card payments and everything it's you know people's eating habits change people there's a lot more competition inflation you know the the war the Ukraine war is kind of driving food prices up gas prices are going up so I think it's just it's so hard to run a business now even with tech that's helping but I still I do think like Chinese takeaways are experiencing the sharpest decline I think it's a generational thing as well where um you know my parents came in came over in the 80s and uh you know they they came to cook really because it was for survival like it was the kind of only jobs that were available to them you know my parents didn't really have an education they didn't you know they couldn't go to uni- they didn't go to university they barely finished comprehensive school i don't think they did actually and um you know they 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 didn't have that many options so a lot of our parents generation came to the uk they cooked so that we didn't really have to and it was kind of their means of survival and you know my parents always said to me um it was always an option for me and my brothers and like if if you know if school didn't work out if university didn't work out or the job that I'm doing now if it didn't work out like there was always the option to fall back on a takeaway so I was always really grateful and privileged to be able to have that you know as a kind of safety net that the takeaway would always be there <laughs> so um yeah I think for me I would probably say yeah hospitality and working at a takeaway is like I wouldn't say it's like easier or harder I think it's in a way it's kind of the same <laughs> if that makes sense mm. it's um you know, there's good and bad back then, 30 years ago, and there's good and bad now. I think, in a way, it's probably harder now. Or my, my probably rambling now. But yeah, I think it's probably harder now. It's because there's so many things to take into consideration. Like a lot of things 30 years ago, you could get away with. Like, you know, um, back then, it was a lot easier in terms not easier i would say there's a lot less checks in terms of our hygiene checks um or regulations and stuff now i think like i was speaking to a lot of my cousins and uh aunties and uncles who still run takeaways now like it's a lot harder in terms of having to do a lot more online hygiene checks or having to do a lot more like temperature checks or making sure that you know marketing comes into play making sure that you're mm. you know you stand out on social media making sure that you know oh um you know a lot of other Chinese takeaways are now on online delivery apps because they use that as a platform to kind of stand out from the crowd so yeah there's good and bad and I think it's definitely more competition it's definitely difficult to kind of stand out as my parents once did <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, speaking speaking of of the now, um, you know, it's it's reading your book and kind of of reading your book, which is uh, based off of an earlier wave of migration from Hong Kong to the UK. Um, you know, it's difficult not to draw some comparisons to uh, the more recent wave of migration from um, Hong Kong to the UK thanks to the UK's new immigration scheme for BNO holders. And we don't have to get into the politics as to why people are making that move. But, you know, as we're seeing this kind of new, I, I guess, new Hong Kong communities growing, like starting up in the UK, um, kind of what your thoughts were about that, whether you had advice for people that were making this move. Um, 
kind of based off of your your own experiences yeah um it's i know like given the circumstances like why they're there and it's obviously quite heartbreaking like why they had to like make that decision um but for selfish reasons (laughs) i actually like it really makes my heart sing to hear more Cantonese, like walking around the street in London. Um, you know, like someone at my company um, is from Hong Kong and, you know, I instantly like make friends with them and try to make an effort to try to make them feel more included. And when I get my hair cut the other day, uh, my hairdresser was also from Hong Kong. So it's, you know, it's a lot of Hong Kongers are coming here and then they're just, um, they're everywhere, they seem to be. And, and I love that. And it makes me really happy that, there's so much more Cantonese speakers around and about for selfish reasons. And, you know, it's even changing the, the, the dining scene. And there's a lot more Cantonese, um, like restaurant, Hong Kong restaurants popping up. There's a, there's a Cha Cha Teng near where I am in like Leytonstone that's opened recently. And there's like a new Hong Kong restaurant that's open at Angel on Upper Street. And, and I think there's all these new businesses kind of catering towards, uh, the new, you know, these new Hong Kong communities opening up. And I think like Sutton is a really big area for new Hong Kongers re, you know, settling in the UK as well. So I think, um, advice i would probably say it's it's so incredibly difficult you know leaving everything behind and you know coming to a a new you know new country new life new you know not really knowing even like one not knowing anyone or you know kind of starting afresh and not really knowing the language very well it's so hard to assimilate um especially when you don't know the like it's not your first language and i think a lot of hong kongers moving to the uk are probably you know a big culture shock one it's incredibly cold and rainy in the uk compared to hong kong and um you know two like the language and the cultural references is so different and i think for me i would probably say any advice would just be you know just try like now that there's social media and i've readily available it's a lot easier to kind of meet people than it was back then i would say it's easier to find um you know not clicks i'm trying to find like new communities finding hobbies or interests or other you know finding new people to meet i think it's definitely easier to kind of connect with people online back compared to when I grew up in the uh, 90s in a rural place like wales so you know for me i think the differences are you know, growing up, I felt very isolated and lonely because I felt like I was like the only Chinese person in, in Wales. And and then since moving to London, I realized like, oh, God, there's actually other Chinese people that aren't my family or friend. And I would, yeah, for me, I would probably say, you know, it's very easy to kind of find people online, find a cl- like communities. And it's only in the last couple of years um that I've really actively really embraced my kind of Chinese identity or really been like really, you know, very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not like a proud of who I am because I guess how can you be proud of who you are? Because that's what you're born into. It's more about being authentically yourself and, you know, embracing your Chineseness and finding other people who are like-minded like you. And I think it's only in the last couple of years since COVID and because of COVID-related hate crimes has really brought me and a lot of my like, East and Southeast Asian friends together. You know, we've bonded over 
things that we're both passionate about, you know, standing for what, standing up for what's right. And through that, it's kind of came a lot of really beautiful community work, you know, um, like Celestial Peach, which is a really great um, community organization run by a friend. She, you know, regularly does work with charities like Chinese communities and like Hackney and uh, London Chinese Community Center, uh, raising money and, you know, coming together with like potlucks where everyone would bring their own dish and cook uh, bond together of the food and play mahjong or you know help elderly and stuff like that and I think it's now it's definitely easier to find little pockets of community or finding new um, events and talks and um, and like dinners and supper clubs together to find and meet new people um, and that's the advice I would probably give them is just you know be open-minded um I know it's going to be incredibly, it's incredibly tough to, you know, start afresh in a new life in a new country. Uh, but it's, it's easier than ever now, I would say, to meet new people online or, you know, meet like-minded people or, um, yeah, I, I think that's probably the advice I would give. It's probably not very good advice, but um, I know it's incredibly difficult, but any Hong Konger that I've met, like new Hong Konger that's uh, resettled in the UK that I've met, I've always try to be as open and friendly as possible and you know welcome them and tell them that oh these are the places you should go or like these are the places that you can meet people or if you're really homesick for hong kong food these are the places to go so i've always tried to be as warming and welcoming to the new bno holders so maybe to maybe to kind of to to end on a more um light-hearted note uh your book also features a number of recipes um you know kind of that, that come from your experience uh in in the takeaway you know what would you recommend that someone try to make first especially if they are like myself a uh not very good cook um oh gosh i would probably say steamed eggs it's um it takes less than half an hour to make and it only uses three ingredients which is um uh, like egg water or some sort of stock if you want stock it could just be water or just and then seasoning and actually two ingredients <laughs> it's, it's really simple and uh it's essentially just cracking eggs and then putting water and then mixing it together as like a until it's kind of what's the word I'm looking for until it's combined and smooth then you just season with salt and pepper and then you just kind of steam it uh for like 10 like 12 to 15 minutes I guess depending on your steamer and it's I think it was one of the first dishes that I learned how to cook um from my parents and it was one that i used a lot during uni because you know one it's like really easy it's really easy to get the ingredients you know you can buy eggs anywhere at supermarkets and water is free from the tap and you can easily kind of make it um you can easily kind of upgrade it or you can kind of pick and mix the kind of toppings and you can kind of um like adjust it the way that you like it you know i would for me i'm a purist i love just simple eggs add a little bit of soy sauce and sesame oil and some spring onions on top and just serve that with plain boiled rice and it's such a 
you know, it's a hearty dish. It's, well, it's like, it's nutritious and it's filling and it's, and I love the jiggliness of it. It's very like custard-like feeling. And um, yeah, I guess it's like a lot of trial and error in terms of it. Like the first time I made steamed eggs, they look really ugly and they were overcooked and they looked very hard. But even if it's still ugly, it's still edible. <laughs> it's still really beautifully, easily comes together. And yeah, there are so many different ways of cooking steamed eggs. I've learned recently that you can even make steamed eggs in the microwave. Same kind of method that you don't even need a steamer anymore. You just kind of cover it with a lid. Um, just make sure that it's in a microwavable uh, plate or bowl. And yeah, I think eggs are like, it, for me, it's such a nostalgic thing. And I love that silky, custardy, uh, like texture for me like Chinese cooking is all about texture and um, like when I had so much fun writing the food in the book I think it was just you know I don't think you really like uh, compared to UK food culture and Chinese food culture I think UK food culture is not as big as Chinese food culture you know it's not as recognized and it's not as um, integral you know I think Chinese families you know or the food the food is love language for them right and there's just so many different words to describe food or talk about food in terms of texture and flavor and smells and um and you know i love talking about chinese steamed egg because it's like one of my favorite textures like what what which is like silky smooth and i just love that um that texture and feeling it's like creamy and velvety and it kind of just slides down your gullet it's like a hug and um yeah what i love about steamed egg is like you can kind of play around with it with different toppings like you can add shiitake mushrooms you can add prawns to it you can add like uh you know stir fried pork mince with like a really thick kind of almost like a gravy like oyster soy sauce on top or play around with it um you can make a veggie you can make whatever um, but yeah, I, w- I would probably say steamed eggs. It's really easily customizable and it really comes together really easily and you don't need a lot of ingredients to use. Well, I will I will take that advice and try to follow the recipe myself. You know, thank you for listening to our conversation with Angela Hui, author of Takeaway, Stories from a Childhood Behind the Counter. Angela, I actually have um, two final questions for you. And those questions are, uh where can people find your work and what's next for you what do you think the next project might be if 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 there is one i know people often need a break after 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 writing the book <laughs> i mean it's the first day back after christmas so i'm still in christmas mode not really knowing how, how a laptop works but you can find my work on uh, my instagram which is like angela hoy which is uh, uh h-u-i-i but on Twitter, I'm Angela underscore Hoy, which is H-U-I. Um, and you can find my work at Recce, which is my full-time job. It's a startup app for hospitality where they can order food and ingredients and supplies. Um, and I do various freelance writing for various places, a timeout eater, vice, um, financial times, wherever you can find me. And um, you can find my book on, I guess, everywhere, like Waterstones, Amazon, uh, Bookshop. I guess if you're international, you can get it from Book Depository, so you can buy the book there. Um, I guess what's next for me, um, I'm still writing the book wave. 
Um, it's the paperback comes out. I know people are very eager for paperback because hardback is very hard to read. Um, but the paperback comes out on the 21st of July, I believe. So it was a year after when the hardback came out. And I believe we're in the process of getting, um, translation rights. So it's going to be translated next year. I can't say when and what languages yet. Um, and other projects, I have some other few things in the pipeline, but I can't really talk about that yet either, which is probably not fun for anyone. Um, and if you're in the UK, uh, I recently worked with Migration Museum in Lewisham, and uh, I helped guest curate their latest exhibition, which is on until it's been extended until June this year. And basically, it's all about how um, like food, well, how immigrants kind of built Britain and they have this really amazing exhibition called Taking Care of Business. And it's how all the different, it talks about all the different immigrant owned businesses. And I guest curated a Chinese takeaway. So there's actually a... Um, like a small, um, a small, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorry, it's a small, um, oh my God, my words have just escaped me, but there's a small, um, like, Oh, excellent. What's oh my god, I can't use my words today. But there's a small exhibition that I curated and it's um uh, it's like modeled that's what I like a modeled off my own old takeaway. So we have the old takeaway sign, we have a counter and there's actually seating and you can learn all about other Chinese takeaway families. Uh their stories, there's even their phone where you can pick up and hear um second generation takeaway kids stories. And I even interviewed my mum on like a, the actual like fake counter TV where she talks about her experience of coming to the UK and what it was like. Um, yeah, so check it out if you want. Sorry, <laughs> that took a while to get out. I was like trying to figure out what my words are. Oh, no, um, it all sounds, yeah, all sounds... that's where you can find me. <laughs> it, all sounds, it all sounds very exciting. Um you know, so you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Um, we hope you subscribe to the Asian Review Books podcast. Download all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info who's coming up on the show. But before then, Angela, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about Takeaway. Thank you for having me. 